We are in Acts chapter 5 this morning, but I just want to start by reminding you of some scripture from the end of one of Paul's letters. Paul was one who often gave sort of practical instructions at the end of his letter, sort of farewell comments uh, that, that um, just summarized what he wanted his readers to know and to follow. And so at the end of 1 Timothy, he gives some very specific directions to Timothy, who's, we talked about 1 Timothy last week, Timothy's serving in Ephesus. He's helping the church there in Ephesus. And part of that message to Timothy was, listen, ministry is not going to be carefree and easy. It's going to be challenging. You're even going to have days ahead of you when people rise up who you were alongside of in the church, and they will rise up and turn against the faith, and, and, and they will lead others astray by false teaching. And so near the end of 1 Timothy, he's warning Timothy of these things. And he says to Timothy, in light of all this, you need to know the truth. You need to persist in the truth. You need to be rooted and grounded in this. And that takes discipline. Train yourself for godliness, Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 4.7. In other words, be disciplined, work hard about these things, about following after Jesus, about knowing his word, about speaking his truth to others. And then in verses 9 and 10 of that same chapter, Paul wrote, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That's, that's Paul's nice way of saying, now pay attention, you really need to listen to this part. This is really important, so, so listen up. For to this end we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Timothy, because we have set our hope on the living, saving God, because we have set our hope on Jesus Christ, we therefore labor and strive. I just want to think about those two words for just a moment because they're going to help set us up for Acts chapter 5. Labor, present active verb, means we are, we are continuing to do this on an ongoing basis. But as scholars who, who understand the Greek really well will point out, this, this word for labor isn't just talking about the exertion that we put out when we're actually working. It's talking about the sense of exhaustion we feel because of that. Exertion. So when he says, for this we labor, it's the idea of, for this we grow exhausted. For this we become weary. And then that verb for strive, it's a passive verb. Passive means this is, this is not me actively doing something. We labor is active. But passive means there's some agent, some other source that's doing this and that's affecting me in this way. And that's a clue as to what Paul meant. Strive is not... Not necessarily the most helpful translation here. This is not a synonym for labor or for hard work. In fact, the Greek that's translated strive literally means to be reviled or disparaged or to be railed against. You may well in your English translation have a little footnote next to that word strive that tells you that it probably could be translated as suffer reproach. And that's the idea. That's the passive. For this we labor and we suffer reproach. Because we've set our hope on the living God. Because we are resting in Jesus, who is our Savior. We are working to the point of exhaustion, and we are enduring reproach and mocking and false accusations. There's a risk, I think, for us 
in 21st century American Christianity that when we read these kind of things, it's not always easy for us to relate to here in America. You and I probably know a practice of Christianity that is a lot more at ease than what we hear Paul speaking about or we see the book of Acts describing. Even in the midst of a pandemic when our corporate worship has been profoundly changed and there are debates about the pros and cons of masks and distance and all of these things, I'm, I'm still not sure we can always relate to the language of exhaustion and suffering reproach. There is no such misunderstanding for the early church in Acts chapter 5. This is the world they live in. We're going to see that this morning. We're going to go through the balance of Acts chapter 5. We left off last week, or two weeks ago with verse 11. We talked about unity within the body, how it's fostered, how it's fractured with the story of Ananias and Sapphira. So I want to pick up this morning in verse 12. I'm just going to read the whole thing, 12 all the way down through 42, and then we'll go back and look at it. So Acts 5 verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering, what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged. And wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. 
For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease, did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. There are a couple of bookends, I think, to this section. The opening verses, sort of those summary verses, tell us that the, the body of believers that we know now numbers in the thousands from what we've already read in the book of Acts, the, the body of believers is gathering regularly and there are signs and wonders in their midst and they are growing. They are being added to that body, that there are people who are being brought to faith in Jesus Christ. And so there is this wonderful ministry going on right there on the grounds of the temple and, and people are being saved. And at the very end of the chapter, it ends with believers rejoicing and the body still gathering and the proclamation of the gospel still going out. In between those bookends is a body that is laboring to that point of exhaustion and enduring reproach. There is rising hostility against them, and we, we see that in this passage. That amongst the Jewish leaders, there is an increasing rage that is rooted in jealousy that these men are now doing what they had thought they ended in Jesus, which was this rise that would sort of diminish them, that would ruin their authority, that would suddenly focus people in on this Jesus of Nazareth. And so there is persecution escalating, and it will continue. And, and by the time we get to chapter 7, the church will experience its first martyr, but we are growing toward that point. And what, and what we see in this account is a pattern that is repeated over and over again throughout church history. There's a local church, a body of believers, and they're doing ministry. They are speaking and serving. They are doing and proclaiming. They are speaking truth, and they are loving others and serving. In this case, there is these signs and wonders that are the activity that people are seeing, and there's proclamation of truth that's going out. We, we know, again, pattern we see here, people respond to that ministry. And there's two kinds of responses from, from fear and awe and even hostility to embracing Jesus Christ as Savior. When Christ is proclaimed, people respond in one way or the other. Then there is growth in ministry. One of the realities that we see happen here in Acts 5 is what we continue to see to this day and what we have seen throughout the history of the church, that as the church speaks and serves, proclaims the gospel, that God in his grace grows the church. And now it is beginning, just beginning to spread out geographically. And through it all, here's the common thread that runs through all of this pattern of ministry, and it's this. It's God's power that is at work in and through his church. God is mighty and his ends, his will, will be done. His purposes will be accomplished. And so his power is at work in all of this. Remember what Paul said about laboring to the point of exhaustion and enduring reproach. We do so, he said, because our God is alive and because he is saving people. Because our, our Savior 
is real and he is risen and he is saving people because it is God who is ultimately accomplishing his will through us. And so we labor and we suffer reproach because of God and his power and his grace. The power that is building the church and that is saving souls, that is growing maturity in its members and that is protecting the church against increasing attacks is the power of God. His power is what is on display through this. It is his power that Luke wants us to see in this passage. It is the enabling power of God as given through his spirit in his people that is behind Paul's for this we experience exhaustion and suffer reproach. It's because God enables us to do that. It is the power of God that enables us to live out the, the, the warning of Galatians 6-9 where it urges us to not grow weary in doing good, to not grow weary in serving. It's because God is at work in us, sustaining us. It is the strength of his might, Ephesians 6, when it starts that whole paragraph that says to stand firm and put on the armor of God, what precedes that is be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. It's his power that enables us to do this. We do so because of his strength, not because of our own. It's the power of God that enables us to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, to give thanks in all circumstances, to be fervent in spirit, to be patient in tribulation. It is the power of God that enables, enables us to overcome evil with good, to put to death sexual immorality and impurity and evil desires and to put on kindness and compassion and patience and humility. It's God's power that teaches us what love is and enables us to sacrificially serve others. And that power is dramatically at work here. And I'm, I, I, we're going to see it in, in three different ways in this passage. Right? Three different ways that you see God's power at work in the life of the church to equip his church, to protect his church, and to build his church. First, the equipping of the church. Verses 12 through 16 are one of Luke's sort of summary statements. We get several of them in the book of Luke's, Luke, uh, Acts, I should say. We saw one at the end of chapter 2 where he talks about how the body is coming together and they're breaking bread together and they're fellowshipping. It's sort of his, his pause in the, the run of the narrative to say, and, and here it is, here's what's happening at this moment. Here's the big picture view of what's happening in the church. And he does that in verses 12 through 16. And he hones in on the fact that there are signs and wonders taking place, that at this point in, in the life of the church, there are these miraculous displays of God's power, even as God's truth is being proclaimed. It's his power, it's his miracles, and it's his truth. The, the miracles are rightly called signs and wonders. They're not just supernatural events in and of themselves meant to draw attention, but they are signs and a sign points to something. It directs us to something. It's, it, it's a marker. You don't stare at a sign endlessly. You, you go inside the building that the sign is for. You don't, you don't stand outside the restaurant and just, and just look at the sign and, and take in the sign. You go, you go in and, and you eat the food, right? At least someday, right? We get to do that. So the sign points us to something. When you see an illusion on TV, we know that there's something going on there. There's some sort of trick that's happened. There, there's something we're trying to figure out. There's some sleight of hand. But when a man who has spent his entire life never being able to walk, he's now more than 40 years old, when that man is suddenly healed and he stands up and he walks, 
There is no illusion here. There's no gimmick. There's no smoke and mirrors at this point. That sign is meant to direct people to the only one who can do that. There's only one who can take a man who has been lame from birth and suddenly, miraculously enable him to walk. There's only one who can give sight to the blind. It's God. And so these signs are to direct people to, to see the supernatural power behind them. Signs and wonders. That word for wonders means to, to marvel at something, to be astonished by it, to, to look at it and go, this is inexplicable apart from God's power. That's why we call these things supernatural, because they, that man can't replicate them. It is the work of God. It is the power of God. And these signs and wonders are serving God's purpose. What they're seeing here in verses 12 through 16, that these miracles that are occurring, coupled with what we read two weeks ago about the story of Ananias and Sapphira and God's judgment falling in that, all of those things have an effect. In fact, two effects. Two opposite effects that are happening, happening simultaneously. And he describes them in this passage. Verse 13 says, the rest dared not associate with them. It's saying that there are onlookers, unbelievers, who are watching all of this and who are seeing these signs and wonders. And just like we talked a few minutes ago from, from Romans 3 about the fear of the Lord, there is that sense that something is going on here that is inexplicable, that is a work of God, and I am, I am not moving toward it yet. Whether it's fear or, or some other sense they, they, of dread, of awareness of their own sin, they are not associating. They are, they are moving away instead of moving toward, and so they stand at arm's length. Verse 13 says, they have respect for what they see, but they are not moving closer to the people of God and the God that these people serve. At the same time, it says in verse 14 that, that multitudes of both men and women are being added to the body. And so there's these simultaneous opposite effects. One moving away, the other moving toward. People are being saved. They are, they are seeing these signs and wonders and saying, this can only be God. This must be true what they are saying about Jesus Christ. And we believe in him. This is, this is that inexplicable mystery of God's power and holiness that so many people would see the same signs and wonders and, and carry this over to our day. So many people would read the same truths in the Gospels and throughout the New Testament and that some would say, absolutely not. I, I, can't, I can't come to this. I can't take this in. I don't want to move toward this while others are stepping right toward Christ who are believing in him. That is the, the mystery of the power and holiness of God. For some, it becomes like repellent. They want no part of a sinless creator to whom they are accountable, and they push back. And for others, they say, this is what I've been searching for. This is the forgiveness and the grace that I've longed for. The miraculous nature of all this is evident in verse 15 when it talks about people sort of lining up on the road hoping that, that sick ones will be in the path of, of Peter's shadow. This, this should marvel us again and remind us of the power of the Holy Spirit. This is Peter, who two months, maybe a little bit more now, prior to that, was terrified of a servant girl who said, hey, didn't you once hang around with Jesus? And no, absolutely not. Peter was terrified, and, and, and this isn't now that Peter has suddenly become a god. 
that he suddenly become this, this amazing miracle worker. He is a man who is being used by the power of God. It is God's power working through Peter, which is exactly what Peter said back at the healing of the lame man in chapter 3. He said it there, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? This isn't our power. This is, these signs and wonders, we don't own these. They're not from us. This is of God. And he went on in Acts chapter 3 to say the same thing that applies here. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That same God that you believe in, that you come to this temple about. That God who raised Jesus from the dead. It is by his power that these things are being done. The shadow comet really reveals more about the crowd's expectation than it is a description of what really happened. Luke doesn't tell us if anybody was actually healed by Peter's shadow, but it tells us the extent of what people were seeing and the power of God was so evident through the apostles, through these signs and wonders, that they're now wondering if even just being in the pathway somehow exposes them to this power. There's, there's another evidence that God is not only equipping them in, in this case, signs and wonders to serve. He, he equips us to serve, to, to encourage others, to, to minister to physical needs, to care for others. He equips us by his power to go out and serve others. This is one specific way in which they are serving, by, by these signs and wonders and healing of people. Another evidence of this is in this summary, and that is the fact that the truth is spreading. Verse 16 says, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted. What started, if you remember earlier in Acts, as a group of about 120 followers of Jesus Christ is now multiplying into the thousands. And now what started in Jerusalem is beginning to spread into Judea. Does that sound familiar? Acts 1.8, when, when Jesus says you will be you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. These, these towns around Jerusalem. This is the first glimpse here in Acts chapter 5 that this gospel now, this teaching by God's power is now leaving the city gates of Jerusalem and going out to, to Bethany and Bethlehem and other towns that are nearby and they are beginning to hear what is happening. God is equipping his church with words to speak Deeds to do, and he is using those to bring people to faith in Christ. It's God's power ministering through them. Just as you and I are called to speak and to serve, to tell others, and to be gracious to them and love them. And we do that not for applause, not because we think we're eloquent, not because we think we're special good deed doers. We do that because we understand the power of God works effectively through us as we speak truth and as we love and serve others. And God's power equips us to serve him and to speak his truth. Second way that you see God's power at work here is in protecting his church. So we get the summary statement, and, and, and then we begin to understand now that the Jewish leaders are seeing what's happening just outside in the temple, in the temple courts, and, and it tells us that they are becoming Irate. They are filled with jealousy at this point because just as happened with Jesus, suddenly crowds are going to these apostles. And so they, they have the, the, them arrested. The Jewish leaders have their guards go out and they arrest the apostles and put them in jail. And verse 19 says, but 
During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. In the middle of the night, in a manner that was entirely unbeknownst to the prison guards, an angel of the Lord frees the apostles. They leave the prison and no one even knows what happened. This is, this is God protecting his church. And not only does he set them free, but he does it in a way that there is no violence. There is no uprising. In fact, the guards who are on duty don't even know that the prisoners are missing until they're called for the next morning. Verse 23 says, when they got there, the cells were securely locked and the guards were standing on duty. We're doing our job. Oh, you want those guys? We'll go get them. And they're not there. And, and, and Luke includes these details to put an exclamation on the fact that this is entirely supernatural. This is not of man. They, they didn't dig through the walls. They, they didn't find some special secret pathway out. They didn't conspire together and have people come and remove the bars. They had no helpers. They simply disappeared from the prison in the middle of the night. And in fact, verse 24 just adds to the emphasis on this one. It says, the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these things and were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. This, this defies explanation again. They're in the same place of how could this happen? This is, this is not some illusion. We don't understand how the guards could still be standing there and the, and the doors locked. And in fact, verse 24 indicates they are unsure of what is to come. They are perplexed and they are wondering, what's next? This has gone from bad to worse these, these disciples of Jesus have begun teaching and filling the streets with this teaching, and thousands are following them, and now they've disappeared from jail. What's next? And, and we know what's happened next, because Luke tells us. Next thing is somebody comes in, a messenger comes in, and says, hey, <laughs> you think things have been out of control here, that you haven't been able to, to tamp this thing down? Very well, well, guess what? We found the apostles. They are out in the temple grounds, and they are preaching Jesus Christ. They are there this morning, and they are preaching the very same message. And so verse 26 says that the, the, the guard, the, the officers who serve this Jewish council, essentially go out to the apostles and ask them to come in because they can't take them by force. They understand that the crowd will rebel against them, and so they essentially go out to the apostles and say, uh, can we get you guys to come with us? And they do. And the religious leaders questioned, it says, the apostles. The, the high priest, verse 27, questioned them. Compare this questioning to the one we saw in chapter 4. Remember after the healing of the, the lame man? And the same leading priests started off with that. Remember that first question that they asked? By what power or in whose name have you done this? Have you healed this lame man? Now, I, I think our assumption in chapter 4 is, is they did that. Knowing there was a chance these guys could give the answer that they did, but also thinking, you bring them in front of the council and we're going to intimidate them and we're going to ask them that question publicly and they will back down and chicken out. They, there's no way they will claim Jesus in front of the whole council. And, and sure enough, Peter did and he preached Christ. So this time, you'll notice the high priest doesn't come out with another like question like, how did you guys get out of jail? 
how did, how did you do this thing last night? He's smart enough, at least this time, to know there's no point in even setting them up and giving them that softball question and, and letting them launch into it. He goes right back to the intimidation game. We told you not to preach Christ. He's really not questioning them so much at this point as reminding them. We strictly charged you that you need to shut your mouths or you will suffer consequences. And now you are doing this and you are flagrantly rebelling against us. Worse yet, your preaching basically is saying that we are the ones who killed God's chosen one and you're trying to put his blood on our hands. That, that's, that's the response when it says you intend to bring this man's blood upon us is your preaching is now not just going counter to our command, but you are indicting us as the religious leaders of the people and saying, we killed God's servant, and you're putting his blood on us. And that's when Peter and the apostles give maybe one of the most memorable answers in all of Scripture. We must obey God rather than men. Yep, we are preaching Christ. Yes, we are telling you that you conspired to put him to death. Yes, we are telling you that Jesus Christ was crucified by governing authorities all according to the will of God and that he is now risen and he is Lord and Savior. Yes, we are preaching that and we will continue to do so because we are submitting to the authority of God. And so if your command clashes with God's command, God wins. We do what he says. This verse, you've no doubt seen a lot in recent weeks on social media. It's been part of the conversation about churches gathering for worship. We must obey God rather than men. There's certainly good reason for this verse to be part of that conversation. If indeed governing authorities simply banned corporate worship, we would have to ultimately disobey. We would have to obey God rather than men. Now today in our region, there are churches gathering and we will be too in the not too distant future. But for the apostles to, to answer this charge, to stand before these leaders, they are in the face of a very real and severe threat in that moment. This is, this is intimidation at its highest point. We have charged you not to speak this. And for the apostles to stand there in what is utter defiance to these authorities and say, listen, you can tell us this all you want. We're going to obey God. And if that runs contrary to what you want us to do, that's okay. We'll take whatever that brings, but we will obey God. And with that, verses 30 through 32, the apostles then launch, we assume Peter's leading the way. They, they not only say we must obey God rather than men, they then say, oh, and by the way, here's what we're preaching. Yes, you conspired to kill Jesus. His blood is on your hands because you, like us, are sinners in need of a Savior, and Jesus came to die for sinners, and he is now risen again. God exalted him at his right hand as Lord and Savior. And yes, we are still preaching that message unchanged, uncompromised, as clearly as we have ever preached it, and we will continue to do so. And we're urging you to do the same. You ought to obey him too, because his spirit has given witness to this, and you need to obey him. I, I, I would submit to you that there is no way any human being standing in that 
moment in that court makes a statement like that apart from the power of God. Because apart from the power of God, this is absolute foolishness to stand in front of the authorities and their guards who have the right now to grab you and to beat you and to destroy you and to go after others and to stand there and say, we will not obey you in what you are telling us to do. In fact, the, the reality is you're the ones who are guilty and you're the ones who need to repent. That is, that is crazy talk unless it is the power of God and the truth of God that is moving through these apostles at this point that they can stand there and do this. The apostles knew what the, the, the British evangelist George Whitfield would, would speak some 1,700 years later when he gave that great line, we are immortal until our work on earth is done. We are here, and we are going to preach Christ, and you can do what you want with that because it is, it is up to God to protect us and to enable us to speak for as long as he sees fit, for as long as we are accomplishing whatever his will is for that moment. Your life will not end, it will not be taken until the work God has for you is complete, period. The power of God should fill us with boldness to speak his truth, to proclaim Christ, to live as servants, to be sacrificial toward others because he will never leave us or forsake us. That is what Jesus promised. God's power protects his church to do his will. Drop all the way down to verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Greek word for enraged literally means to cut something with a saw. We would, in our vernacular today, would probably say their heads were about to explode. They are so angry at this one. This word in the New Testament is only used two places. It's here and it's Acts 7 when they end up killing Stephen. They are at the point of blind rage. They, they could not possibly be angrier at this point. Their authority, once threatened by Jesus, whom they conspired to have crucified, is now being threatened all over again, and they are seething, and they are about to erupt and simply take this matter in their own hands and start killing these men right then and there. And it's at that moment that this Pharisee, who we're told is a respected teacher, who is one that others look to, apparently who has some age, his name is Gamaliel, and he stands up and he speaks. Verse 34, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders. Put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, be careful what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, talks about Thutis, rose up, 400 joined him in an uprising. He was killed. All who followed him were dispersed. Then, then there was Judas the Galilean. He rose up, days of the census. He too perished. All who followed him were scattered. Verse 38. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. Gamaliel is gracious enough at this point to give a history lesson. He says, guys, there have been uprising and threats before. We've seen so-called messiahs who have come before. 
who have said, we're, we're going to lead Israel from, out from under the, the yoke of Rome. We're going to take care of this. And, and in fact, he goes back to the days after the death of Herod the Great in 4 BC. And we know from history, even from Josephus tells us that he knew from history that back at that death of Herod the Great, there were a number of uprisings that happened over the course of the next few years. And he speaks of the time of the census, and we would relate that back to Luke chapter 2 and the birth of Jesus. All during that season, there, was, there were moments of chaos. There were times when, when guys said, we could, we could seize this, and we could overthrow Rome at this moment. And Gamaliel says, there have been Jewish leaders before us who sat here pondering the same thing. What do we do with these would-be saviors, these ones who claim that they are messiahs? And in the end, they self-destructed. In the end, they were gone. They were defeated in some way. They briefly had crowds that followed them. They, they were popular for a moment, and they, they had something happen, and then, and then they were undone. They, they unraveled. And he says in verse 38, um, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. He's saying, just, just leave these followers of Jesus alone. Just, just leave them alone, because if this is another foolish uprising... It, it'll fade into history like all of the ones before. It's happened before and it'll happen again. But, but guys, he says, if this is of God, we are not going to be able to stop this thing. We can kill all these guys right now and it will not stop. The third way we see the power of God at work here is building his church. Because what Gamaliel recognizes is if God is building this, if God is the designer and architect of this, if God is actually the power this time and not just some rebel with a plan who's getting a bunch of guys and, and, and going out and wanting to fight, if this is actually God at work in this, we can beat more people and we can maybe even crucify some more guys, but it will not stop his work. And if Gamaliel had only known, he could have said, guys, listen, if this is of God, 2,000 years from now, there will be people still preaching Christ and still coming to faith in Christ if this is of God. In fact, he says, if we're on the wrong side of this, we, we end up getting crushed. We just need to walk away from this. We need to send these guys on their way, and we need to trust that God is in control here. Because if this is just some scheme of some educated clowns from Galilee, it will unravel. It will untie. When he says that word fail in verse 38, it means to untie something. It's like pulling the, the loose thread on a garment, and all of a sudden you pull it, and the whole thing starts to unravel on you, and it's ruined. But if this plan, if this undertaking is actually God's, his warning at this point is you, you can pull at it, you can cut at it, you can do everything you want to try to rip this thing apart, and you will not be able to. He, he's using the same, di different forms of the same Greek word in verses 38 and 39 when he says that um, it, it, the, it, if it's the undertaking of man, it will fail, it will unravel. And then he says, verse 39, but if it's a God, you will not be able to. And, and the ESV is used to overthrow there. It's, it's a form of the same Greek word. You won't be able to untie this thing. You will not be able to unravel this. You will not be able to pull this apart. And by the power of God, Gamaliel's fairly simple speech in the context of what's happening there actually persuades this enraged crowd. That in and of itself is remarkable. That one man could stand up and speak. That, that is a testimony to the power of God protecting, and we will see, building his church. In the words of Gamaliel, God's going to do this. 
With just a few words, the the tone of the room shifts. There's still a ton of foolish anger in that room, enough that they ordered the apostles to be whipped. When it says they beat them, it is the word for flogging. This was not just they smacked them around a little bit. This is they whipped them. Traditionally, the flogging was 39 lashes with, with cowhide, three threads of, of cow, three straps of cowhide that were in that whip, and they beat these men. They were bloody. Their skin was ripped open. They were in pain and suffering because of what happened, because of this foolish anger that, that it essentially at this point is trying to say, you're, you're going to listen to us this time. We won't kill you, but, but we'll get you close so that you know just how serious we are about this, all to deter them from preaching. And then you got verse 41. And the apostles left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. God's power will build his church and nothing can prevail against it. Here are God's people, bloodied and in agony, and still believing that by God's power, they will believe in that and rest in that And even in the worst possible suffering and persecution, they will trust that God's power enables them to suffer joyfully and to begin the next breath to teach and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ because God is building his church. When they go back to that church family, to those brothers and sisters in Christ, having just endured the agony and the humility, the, the humbling, the, the, the just being beaten in front of that, that council and all that goes with that. It, on one hand, this had to seem like the darkest hour that young church had experienced up until this point. This is that moment when it feels like they've hit rock bottom in their formative days, but instead of being discouraged, instead of believing that we're beat, We can't stand up to these. If if this is what they're going to do, the apostles, we know what's going to happen next. They're going to start killing us. And instead of conceding defeat, the apostles went back to their brothers and sisters rejoicing and saying, "Let's, let's go preach. Let's proclaim Christ. Let's speak and let's serve. Let's labor to the point of exhaustion. Let's endure whatever reproach comes for the name of Christ. Because his power has been evidenced again and again. His spirit is within us. He is working through us. He is a mighty God, and he will equip his church and protect his church and build his church, and we can rest in it. If they could in that moment, you and I can today. You and I have the privilege of serving the very same God, being filled with the very same spirit, That God that we sang about just before the sermon, he is the same from age to age. He is as powerful in Acts 5 as he is today as we gather for worship. He is a mighty God who is building his church. And that should give us courage and endurance, boldness by his spirit, grace, love to serve others and to speak his truth. Let's pray. Father, you are the same. You are a powerful God, a holy God, 
a great and mighty God, a creator God. There is none like you, as the scriptures tell us. There is none like you. And so for, for any of us to claim to be able to call you Father is purely by your grace that you would give your son as a ransom for our sin to draw us into your kingdom and to be your people and to be your children. It's just mercy and kindness toward us. Thank you for that. We pray, Father, that you would, by seeing these accounts in the book of Acts, restore, if need be, in us a, a, a sense of boldness, a sense of being unafraid to take risk for the cross of Christ, for the gospel of our Savior. Help us to, to speak truth, to serve sacrificially, to love others even when they are not loving us. Help us to show them the great and holy God. Thank you that the power to endure, to bear reproach, to have strength, even when exhaustion is tempting, that that power is yours. May you give it to your people. Here at Grace Bible Church, here throughout Northern Virginia, where there are believers meeting both online and now starting to come back into buildings. Please, in the midst of a day when, when people are searching for answers, please work mightily through your church that we would be the signs, the markers to point them to your truth, that we would show them in your word who you are, and that we would call them to repent and to believe in Jesus and to enjoy life and forgiveness and hope, to enjoy the promise that we are here and immortal and protected until that day. When we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Help us to be people who worship and honor and serve you. Until that day, we pray in Jesus' name.